0: Begin with a word of prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of life itself. You truly are the giver of every good gift. Thank you for the gift of yourself, your invitation to us to enter into your very life. Father, we ask you to send your spirit as you promised you would do if we ask. Here at this time in this place, open our hearts. Lord, remove every barrier. And Lord, uh, speak to us and just open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to talk about two things today. First of all, we're going to start, the first session is going to be on the Trinity. I think I'm far enough away from you I can do this, so I won't choke to death. Okay. Old age is not for the faint at heart. Okay, uh, <laughs> the other thing is then we'll talk about the creeds and the councils. Now, when we talk about the Trinity, a lot of times the first reaction people have is, oh, gee, I'm going to get this wrong, especially people getting ready for ordination exams and things. It seems like an esoteric thing if you have extra time. Well, we're going to find out that's not true at all. The Trinity is at the very heart of the Christian faith. That's really important. And if we just go clearly, it's going to be amazing. It also tells us something about how God deals with us and how we deal with God. So this is not interesting. This is not trivia. Sometimes we think of this as small things for people with a lot of time on their hands. It's not at the opposite. OK, so let's look at the uh, Trinity, and we'll say specifically why the case. We're not just going to say it should be that way. We'll tell you why it's that way. OK, how do I do this here? See, Okay, the first thing is the central mystery of our faith. So if we wonder, gee, I mean, how do we know that the Lord Jesus himself, as he left, he said, go, he said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our very baptism when we enter into life in Christ, our very baptism is, is that's what happened. and We focus on as a Trinitarian formula. That's got to be pretty important. You say, at the very moment, you know, we enter into Christ, it's that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Something interesting in the church is that, again, we share the faith of Israel. You know, the famous Shema, hero Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one, but he's also three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So notice in the formula of the church, when we have a baptism, we don't say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son. In the name of the Spirit, we say, Oh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we only use the name to remind you there's one God, three persons. And again, name means authority. I mean, one of the classic things, name is, you know, like in the name of the law, (laughs) it's not the magic word or something, it's under the authority, under this authority. You know, I'm asking you under this authority. Now, here's something interesting there are different types of revelation. For example, the first type is called we call it the natural revelation or the general revelation in theology, and that means there. Paul talks about this. He said, "Well, what about these pagans? You know, unlike um, you know, unlike the Jews, but God spoke to them. He gave them. You know, what about them? What are they responsible for?" And he said, "I'm telling you, they're without excuse because you can see in creation, like this beautiful tree. There's nothing artificial about this, is there? Okay, but but you have the idea. With when we look at it, he said we can see God's character." You know, his power and His character in creation. So we call that the general revelation. So the fact that God is, exists, He's powerful and He's good, is something that anyone could know with, if they just sat back and looked. The second thing, though, is that doesn't tell us about God more specifically. That means there is a God. You know, sort of like you come in the house and you realize there's coffee on the table or something. I can see someone's been here, or is here, you know, but I don't know who it is. Then we have specific revelation, and that's what we have to Israel, where God actually speaks to us. He speaks to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He speaks through the prophets. Actually, if you, I think I might have mentioned this, but I like to make sure you know. Lord Judaica is in Jewish tradition a prophet. We think of prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah. You know, anyone God speaks to is a prophet in the Jewish sense. There are forty-six people God speaks to in the Old Testament. So that you know, they're, you know that, that makes you a prophet is <laughs> God speaks to you. Okay. But the trouble is, even then, there are certain things they could not know the Trinity. The church has always taught we could only only Christ himself in person in his incarnation could reveal that. So that's unique with Christ. You can't know. The, now, we can look back in the light of Christ now and in the Old Testament see the Trinity. But you would, it's like one of those things where if you're looking at a, a murder mystery or something, you could, after the fact, you could say, whoa, I can see it here, but there's no way you could figure out the murder mystery from the clues until it's all put together. So it's only in the person of Christ that we can actually know the Trinity. So as a general revelation, we all know there's a God. And we can all know there's a particular personal God, in the, in the, but we only can know that there's a Father, and a Son, and a Holy Spirit, thanks to the actual, in, the living revelation, where Jesus himself is the message. He's not just the messenger, he's the word incarnate, the actual messenger. Okay, so we have that. Uh, so Okay, now let's go to, evidence of the three persons. Now, some people say, where do you get this from? Well, actually, there's no getting around it. Look at this, uh, for example, here's some of my favorite quotes. For example, in John, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Now, notice that we're talking about these in opposition so we'll talk about later. they're in opposition he says i've got to ask the father well, he doesn't i'll ask the father he will send a third party the holy spirit so clearly they're being put in opposition to one another uh, take another one here from john 14. Uh, he says in the same chapter but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name so again the father sends the spirit in the name of jesus they're in you know they're in opposition they're not just different names for the same thing. I one point, Jesus said, Last supper, look, it's better for you I go, I'm telling you. I know it's, it's hard to go like this, but honestly, if I don't go, I can't ask the Father to spend the Spirit. Again, we have, whoa, he has to go ask the Father to send the Spirit. We have an opposition. The Son is not the Father, is not the Spirit. Okay? When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. Again, it's oppositional. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So this is in the New Testament. Clearly there is an opposition between the Father and the Son. A main theme of John's gospel is the love of the Father and the Son. and the Holy Spirit, you know, clearly fits into this. We'll talk about how that works. <coughs> but uh, so we have a lot of evidence, a clear evidence of the three persons. This is very helpful in ministry because very often showing these passages, will ring a bell in the way it hasn't before. You're saying, well, you're talking, the Spirit's saying, look at that. See, do you see the the difference, how they're distinguished from one another? There's no way to interpret this. One is not the other. You have to go to one to send the other. So the opposition is really clear in passages like this. (coughs) Now, the Holy Spirit as a person. Now, one thing, you know, the first person we learned about in the Trinity was the Father, right? In the Old Testament, we hear all about God the Father. And the second person we have in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we learn about His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. The last person we learn about in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. He's present, but he's the last person we have any, you know, basically that we have information on. And so what happens here is the church had to come to an understanding. We'll talk about this with the councils. Uh, Is the Holy Spirit sort of a thing? You know, like an emanation of God, or is he a person? What is he? And here is basically two reasons why we believe the Holy Spirit is a person. The church has come to that conviction. The first one is. Remember, we even talk about it. When we talk about grieve not the Holy Spirit. You can't grieve somebody's mood or something. You can grieve somebody, but not their mood. <coughs> Thank you. I just have something in my throat. I'm not at all cold or anything like that. But I will bless you. That's very kind. But the other reason is this. Here's what we're going to talk about with the councils. Uh, Basil, uh, Athanasius started this, but Basil is the one who really took this home, Basil of Caesarea, one of our great church fathers. He said, look, you know the uh, the philosophical argument? Well, if it walks like a duck, and looks like a duck, and, you know, it's a duck. So he's basically, I don't mean to be disrespectful here, but basically that's the argument. He's saying, look, the Holy Spirit does things that only God can do, and he receives the same honor as God. Well, if you do what only God can do, and your honor is only God can be honored, that's a key that you're God. So that's why we say the Spirit, and we'll see later on the very specific things, but he, the Holy Spirit does things only God can do, and he receives the same honor as the Father and the Son. He's put in the same list you know, on, you know, as separate. So the theory was, besides passages like grieve not the Holy Spirit you know, you know, as a person, but we have the fact that, well, look, he does what only God can do, and he's honored in a way only God is honored. Equally, He has mentioned, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's common to have the Trinitarian references. So that's one of our beliefs, the Holy Spirit is not only a person but equal to the Father and the Son. But more about that as we progress. Now, let's talk about some uh, terminology here, theology versus economy. What this means, uh, I think a number of you have studied very formal, formal theology, right? But, but for just so you bear with me, but we'll say, make sure everybody's on the same page. What theology actually means, there are two different meanings. There's a, tech, there's a general thing. Theology means studying all this religious stuff. But the technical meaning of theology within theology is theology is the study of God is who he is. It's the actual study of God. Theologos, you know, is the study of God. Not all the stuff, not sacraments. That wouldn't be theology, in the, in the, within theology. We use theology to describe anything about the church, anything, you know, this theology. But theology within theology, the technical term means the study of the very nature of God himself. Who is God? Who is he? What is he? That's theology. Now, economy means how does God act? You know, we, you know, God's actions are called economy, economia in Greek, economy. How does God act? So all the works of God reveal himself. It's what God does, so who God is and what God does, theology and economy. Now, there's a wonderful relation between these two. So let me show you how they, they interact. If we know who someone is, we're in a good position to better understand what they do. So, for example, uh, I think I'll use this in another context with you if, from the Talmud. If we have, uh, but I'll uh, embroider at the end, if we find someone, we come across a body, there's a knife in it, we find someone holding the knife, what do we think they're doing? Did they kill the person or they tried to pull out the knife and help them? Well, if you know the person is a nurse and you see her there and she's crying, you say, well, that's a pretty good, ind- I can pretty much interpret this. I might look at it differently if I did not know that. I might really interpret this differently. But knowing who she is, I know what this is. I have no doubt she must be helping. So very often in the Bible, knowing who God is allows us not to misunderstand things like in the Old Testament and the like. You know, we often have to explain to people, when we know who God is and how He loves us and His plan, things that, for example, this is a footnote, but it might help when you talk to people, is, for example, in in the Bible, we, we describe things as they appear. That's the normal way people speak languages. Like for example, I talk about the sunrise. You know, I got a you know at sunrise, and you say, "What you, you know." I know the guy's old, but hasn't he heard the sun doesn't rise; the earth goes. No, I, I do understand. Even at my age, it was new when it came up. Okay, but I, I understand that theory. I've got it. But that's how it appears, right? So we often describe things by appearances. So the wrath of God in the Old Testament, for example, looks really. How can the God of love be like this? But you know, I use the example. This really works for people is all of us who are parents, Somebody's many of us are parents here? Aren't you? Am I the only parent? Okay. Well, trust the rest of you, this will happen to you. Your kids, I guarantee, are going to do things that are going to scare you to death, because they're unbelievably fast in things, you know, uh, you know the kind of thing. So here's a kid, you know, he somehow, got, he's aggressive. you suddenly a moment, you're a grip, he runs out and he runs towards the street. He's oh my God, you know, the kid could get killed. You're terrified what's going to happen. And Mom runs out after him and she comes, oh, what are you doing? You're going to get killed. Now if that child is going to tell you, Mommy was mad at me. Mommy was angry, she hated me, because that's... He, but we'd say, excuse me, you have it 100% wrong. You know, uh, no, no, no. Mommy loves you so much that you terrified her. So it's not the anger of, you know, I, I don't like it, It's the other, it's the exact opposite. So actually, God explains this in the Old Testament by saying he is a jealous God. And what jealous means is because I care. For example, if you really care about someone, you can't be neutral. Think about this. is We all know, sadly, people who've gone into the sad world of drugs and sort of lose their lives and just get lost in it. They're they're just living uh, in another world. It's really tragic. But somehow we manage to live with that, until it's our brother or our son or someone we really love, because then they're not just another person with a drug problem. Because it's, we will never feel neutral. We'll never feel about someone like this like we feel with anybody else. We'll never, we'll never be able to live with this and just move on. We can't move on. That's a beautiful thing, Means we never give up. As a parent, if you're troubled, I don't care. It takes 20 years. You know, you used to pray every day, and you hope you try. And if there's any way to have my child back, I want my child back. That's how God is. So he says jealous God means he cares. Like jealousy is not envy. Jealousy means that you don't want to lose something. You know you're jealous. You know, friend, you don't want to lose something. So I'm just saying. So the knowing who someone is can really help explain things. Saying, "Oh, I, God loves you." So no, it's, he's not really mad. He's like your mom. Your mom loves you. She's terrified. <laughs> that can help explain things that otherwise would look different. Conversely, seeing what God does helps us to really understand who God is. This is the point. Did I tell you about uh, last time? I'll do it again if I uh, perhaps uh, by, about Felix culpa. But this is a. a I a yeah, I remember that notion. But again, we would think normally, so I'll just the short firm is, we would normally think, yeah, God loves me, he created me, but he created rocks too, he created all sorts of stuff. And it basically it doesn't take him any time. Normally what something is worth, I'm gonna count it, is what you have to give up for it, in sense of time and resources. Well God has infinite time and it doesn't take him any time, he doesn't he creates us out of nothing, so it doesn't cost him anything. See so you'd say the fact that he created me was better than that, but it's it didn't take it's like Bill Gates giving it giving you ten cents. You know, for all practical it's not a big deal. How do I know this? However, he said, God so loved the world he gave his only son. You say, Whoa, I couldn't do that. And he would do that. So seeing the things God does helps tells us who he is. So it goes works both ways. Knowing who God is, things that otherwise would make it the wrong impression, we say, Ah, because I know who God is, I know that this is. He's he's not angry with me, he cares. He can't just let me wander off uncaring. Like Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And the other thing is when we see the th- incredible things God does, when we see it come for Paul, Paul said, you know, I really am the worst. You know, I killed people. And he said, well, look at what God did. When we see what God does, it helps. So it works both ways. That's economy and theology, the relationship. Okay. So we have the example. So in talking about the Trinity, theology means talking about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's something talking about something of the very nature of God. Now, what the Trinity does in its various persons as creator, redeemer, sanctifier, that's economy. See the difference? Because the very nature of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what they do, you know, God, the creator, you talk about recreating, redeeming, sanctifying, that's economy, that's things God does, not who he is. He, you know, sanctified isn't a definition of God, it's one of the things he does. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is who he is. Now, substance versus persons. Now, I'm going to tell you, one of the things, if, you, if I ever do historical theology with you, I, I'm particularly fond of it, but it can be very confusing because they had to come up with terms to describe things and the terms change over time. So one of the troubles we have in certain times is they, they say, hey, this term isn't working, and they had to use a different term. So I'm going to use the definitive terms everyone has agreed on, you know, all the way back in the fourth century. Since that time, there's been no disagreement on terms. And so, what we have is first of all, the oneness of God, Godness, you know, the one God is, we use the word, the Greek word, ousia. Okay, that's simply essence, being. Okay, so that's common to all persons. There's only one essence of God. There's only one God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are are one. They're one God. There's not, there's only one essence. They simply share a single being, ousia, being. Okay. And it's common to all three persons. So with the Son, we talk about, now the Latin word for this is substantia. So that's why we talk about substance. Substantia is the Latin word for ousia. So we talk about the, the, the Christ as being consubstantial, meaning sharing, con, with, con, sharing the same substance. In Greek, the word is homoousius, because homo means the same. So homo, the same, usia. Homoousius, sharing, also makes an adjective. You know, someone who shares the same being, homoousius. Okay. Now, what do we do for a person? Well, uh, what are these three persons? And now we use the Greek word hypostasis. Hypo, uh, hypostasis. And that means one of the persons. Now, in, English, in Latin, we call them persona. A person is the Latin word for this. Now, originally, uh, so that's the, the, the words we use. And this is what makes this is the terms we use, this is important, describe simply how they differ. Since it's one God, the only reason we use Father and Son is to say here's the one thing they don't share in common. They have one essence. So the whole reason we have names is to say what's not the same between them. The only reason, the, na- the names we call it in philosophy is oppositional. They only exist to show the difference. Otherwise God is 100% the same. But the fact is the, there's something in God where the Father is not the Son. Okay, that's what we're saying. So that's how we define them in those terms. Okay, so who's the father? The reason we use the term father is he's the principle or source. That's where everything comes from. Your father, where everything finds its origin. We use the line where principle is from the line where principium, beginning, source, principium. Okay, so we call it the, is the principle and source. Now the son is begotten of the father, okay? Now, why do we say begotten instead of made? It's a very big uh, difference. Think about this. You could make a table, right? If you're a workshop or something, you could make a table, birdhouse, you could make a project or something like that. But even though it's yours, it's not you. But a child is different, isn't it? A child has your own DNA. I mean, a child, in a sense, is really your life. I mean, every bit of their life comes from you. So a child isn't like making something. We talk, sometimes people sadly use the expression make a child, you know, in a sort of colloquial sense, but it's not like making something else because, you know, it's a sharing of the very, it's your life being shared. It's not something outside of you, it's yourself. So that's why they turn the term begotten, is to show that a creature like us, we are, not, we are outside of God. He simply made us. But the Son is of the very being of the Father. He's not made, he's of the very being of the Father. Okay, now the Holy Spirit, now does Jesus have a brother? <laughs> because we say we also have a Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit proceeds. So instead of emphasizing there's a difference here, he proceeds, it's just a term to say, well, He, the Father and the Son, then we have the Holy Spirit. And they use a term called spiration. Spirare in Latin means to breathe out. That's I shouldn't do it with COVID, but you get the idea. That's spiration, and so the whole, Christ is begotten, but the Holy Spirit is breathed out. It's just a way to describe. Th- now, here's where we have a difference between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. <coughs> the Eastern Church says that the Holy Spirit is the Father breathes out through the Son, brings the Holy Spirit, and that's the difference from proceeding and being begotten because it involves Christ is involved. You know, the you know it's you know that. Unlike the Father, the Father simply begets the Son. But the Holy Spirit involves Jesus somehow, In the old, in Eastern churches, is the, is the Father through the Son is the Holy Spirit. In the Western Church, and this is big from Augustine, is we argue that the Father and the Son together are, are a shared principle. That the two, like two parents, You we have two parents for a child, I'm not saying this is how the Holy Spirit came, but using a human analogy, is that it has two parents is the Father and the Son together breathe out the Holy Spirit. So he equally comes from Father and Son. And why this is important in the West is Augustine would say, you know, basically, and this is how so much of our spirituality, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and that mutual love is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mutual love between the Father and the Son. Okay, so in the Eastern Church, they say, you know, the Father, it's, the, it comes from the Father, but through the Son. In the Western Church, we say it comes from the common, the Father and the Son, they're mutual. Love together. Is the whole, is, from that, it proceeds the Holy Spirit. Again, the two together are a common principle. Now, outside of time, one of the things Arius is going to bring up is say, wait a second. What's the one thing you know about me? I have I have three boys. They're all adults now. One's pushing forty. Boy, that happens fast. Okay, but in any event, um, when with those, what we can say about them is the one thing you know is I don't tell you what. If I didn't tell you the age, you'd know he's got to be younger than I am, right? A son is younger than the father. So people tried to argue. Well, that means the son must come from before. There must be a father before there's a son. We're going to call it Arius. And therefore, the son really isn't the same as the father. I mean, the father is superior in such that he's an origin. He's in a different way. And what happens here is, remember, God is not subject to time. God is outside of time. Time only exists because of an absence of it. Uh, You know what I'm saying? I mean, if if we had endless time, there is no time. Time is... The the notion of time comes from the fact that we have a beginning and an end. If we never had a beginning and an end, there would be no such thing as time. Time is using up a, a, a quantity like that. So the thing is... Uh, you know, there is, there's never a time there was a father without a son. There's never a time he had a father and a son without a Holy Spirit. That notion of time is foreign to God. So that's why we say he's begotten before all ages. But even more specifically in theology, like a lot of the saints will tell us, is it's outside of time in this sense. It's eternally happening. Is the father is always, the begetting is the father gives himself, the son receives himself, and that's an endless process for all times. It's the life within the Trinity, like blood flow is the Father's giving himself, the Son's receiving, and that mutual giving and receiving of the Holy Spirit, that that's the natural... that's how the Trinity works. So instead of being something that took place and is over, it's, so you can look upon it as something that's ongoing forever. That's the very nature of the Trinity. The Father gives, the Son receives, and the, 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 the mutual relationship created of giving and receiving is the Holy Spirit. Okay. And that's what we say before all ages, saying there's never a time where we don't have all three. The three are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Others. Okay. So this is what the procession uh, controversy was. What happened is, in the Eastern Church, just so you know, we have, they call it filioque. In Latin, we say in the Creed, he proceeds from the Father. That's what the Nicene Creed says. Now, the Western Church, which is really cut off, historically what happens is, with changes in the Roman Empire, is the West sort is a backwater. All the money and stuff is in the East. Rome is really the westernmost city worth mentioning. I mean, all the money, all the commerce and stuff is in the eastern Mediterranean. Rome, Rome is sort of the far wild west, the San Francisco of the Roman world. The other stuff, they don't have good harbors, it's nothing, it's nothing out there. So basically, what you, what you have here is in the west. They, uh, they wanted to make it clearer, so they thought, hey, wouldn't it be clear if we emphasize that it's not just from the Father, but the Father and the Son because we don't say either through or from. So they put onto the creed extra word, filioque. Latin is the word and. There are two words in Latin, et and que. que. simply means and. So filioque means and from the sun. Filioque. And they added that word on into the Western creed, simply saying they thought it was no harm, they are just helping to make it clearer. The Eastern church was "Well, you can't add to a creed, everybody agreed. You gotta start adding words, that misses the point. So the real anger came. From you, this is so arbitrary. Who are you to take a creed the whole church agreed with and start adding on to it? But here's where people get wrapped up, is the Eastern church then sort of creates a, you know, starts making this a theological thing that really wasn't that much, you know. You know, to to say, why, it's not just wrong words, you know, you're wrong theology. And we say, well, we'd be happy to get rid of the word. We probably shouldn't have done that. But the theology is right. (coughs) You see where we get this horrible thing. The West shouldn't have done it, but they don't want to give up the theology because we believe in that theology. And the East says, well, you not really should have done it, but the theology is wrong. And so what we ended up having happening is like in the Anglican Church, if you look at our prayer book, it has, and the Son in parentheses. And they have a footnote saying, look, we can, in a sense of being ecumenical, we could drop the term, and the Son, to use the creed as the councils approved it. That'd be a good ecumenical thing, but we don't, it's really important, it's in our 39 article religions, we believe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So, this is not saying we're willing to say, yes, we did the wrong thing adding the words, but not that the doctrine's untrue. So, that's the filioque controversy. Yes? I'm not quite sure what is at stake. Well, here's what's they say: why the East, uh, where they came from, is they think it, it changes the very nature of the Father. is They're saying that the Father is the unique principium. That's what makes him the Father, that's his distinguishing trait. And if he shares that with the son in this case, they think it would take away from his character as father. We don't see it that way, because we're saying, no, he's still the brigade, but he's, in this case, he shares that in this one act, he shares that with the son. But that's the heart of their argument is they're afraid it diminishes the distinguishing of the father. Okay. So that's uh, the filioque controversy. And again, it's more about words, honestly. You know, to try to make this is like its point of the Catholic Catechism points out that we'd have no trouble in the West saying the Father through the Son. That's also true. But I mean, the point is that the Son's involved. You know, that that's, the, that's the, the critical point. And we love the idea, that, again, that it's this mutual giving that He is that he pre- proceeds from the relationship of the two. OK. Now, let's talk about common operation. Here's, I got to give you a question you can't get wrong. Isn't that the best kind? Who raised Jesus from the dead? Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. And I told you, you can't get it wrong. Well, the Father, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So there, are, Okay, the, uh, Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit, is, the Father is, is giving credit for raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So Jesus, look, I'm going to raise up my own life. Then we're told, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. So what does this mean? And this is something we talk about in, um, in theology, as we call it common operation. Since there's one God, all three persons are involved in everything God does. They're just involved differently. We normally talk about one person as being the leader of a given action. Think of it that way. I'm being very non-theological here, but you get the idea. So, like, the Father creates the whole world through the Son and the Holy Spirit. But we talk about the Father being creator because he's sort of the lead in creation. Everything's created through Christ, but it's the Father. So So, it's everything that God does is like that. You know, the Father, the God so loved the world, He gives His Son. At the crucifixion, the Father is giving the Son, right, who gives up His life, and the Holy Spirit is produced from that. He, he says, you know, He says, uh, I commend my Spirit. So they're all involved. They're involved differently, and normally the lead actor is the one we'll talk about with that. Okay. Because think of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is the direct agent of sanctification, but He's sent by the Father through the Son. So they're all involved in sanctification. They don't have separate businesses. Okay. So... Okay, so uh, one thing we have to watch out here, this is going to be very helpful to you for thinking about the Trinity, is listen up to this because this will solve endless mysteries that are, it's really easy to think about it. Since Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each one is fully God. If you talk to the Holy Spirit, you're talking to God entire. There, you cannot divide God, there's one God. No matter whom you speak to in the Trinity, you're speaking to God. When it comes to actions, however, you know, everything Christ does, God does because He's God. So, we could say that God died on the cross. Even though God, you know, it's the humanity God, but it, was, it would not be wrong since Christ is God, God. Anything Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does, God does. However, it's not true that anything God does is done by, specifically by an individual member. For example, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son dies on the cross, not the Father. Do you see the difference? So, that's back to there's a heresy called Patripassianism, which comes from Latin meaning the Father suffering. Is that you know people we could say the Father died? No, no. Is the, the 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 being is true of anything that a person of the Trinity does, the whole God does. But that's not to say everything God does is done by all three equally. You know, only the Son actually dies on the cross. God, since he's God, but the Father is such which is the opposition to the Son does not. Does that make sense to you? So anything a person does, God does. But not everything God does is true of every individual person. Okay, yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Um, when it comes to Patripassianism, um, how do we maybe avoid even just effectively um, or emotionally feeling like, okay, well, because the son has a human nature, he can empathize with my emotions. Because the father doesn't, he can't empathize with my suffering or my pain. Or even the suffering or pain of his son on the cross. Mm -hmm. Although, of course, what Jesus does represents God in general, but not the Father or the Spirit in particular.
0: That's a really good point. And here's how the answer the Scriptures give it to us. This, and again, you as a father would understand this in a a visceral sense. I got to tell you, like I told you when I talk about Felix culpa is I am not a particularly brave guy. You know, some people are just naturally brave. I think I'd try to do the right thing, but I wouldn't be the kind running in front. You know, if the kid's in front of the bus, I'd probably go help him out, but I wouldn't feel, hey, this is great, you know? I'd be, oh, gee, uh, but I'd be frightened, but I'd probably do it. But the point is, the one thing I can tell you I would never do, I'm just is just too visceral, is put my child in harm's way. I can't imagine putting my child in harm's ways for someone else, ever. You know, so say, I might give up my life for the kid, but I wouldn't say, hey son, you can do it. Run out there, no. <laughs> and so that's why when John says, you know what, you wanna see amazing, you wanna see what God's like, it's that the father would give up his own son. That's the main theme of, God, of John's Gospel, by the way. In John's Gospel, it's not Jesus's idea, it's the father's idea. Jesus is doing because he loves the father. He says, this is the Father's plan. I'm, this is, the Father loves you. So one of the big problems we've talked about that we have to worry about with evangelical backgrounds is sadly often through a very bad soteriology, is, uh, which means that how we're saved. You know, We get the idea that good cop, bad cop. God the Father has anger issues. Frankly, he's not very lovable. Thank goodness we have Jesus. When God goes off on our tear, Jesus, you know, when he's throwing things at us, he goes in front and he takes the hit. I mean, it's really but that's how a lot of people, so we say we love God, but we really don't. I mean, he's really a problem, the bad news, uh, but thank goodness for Jesus. The scriptures teach exactly, you know, 100%, they say, God is so lovable will give up his own son? And Jesus says in John's Gospel, he says, you don't have to ask in my name, the Father himself loves you. It's not like you have to ask him, but he says that, you don't have to ask him in my the Father loves you, you, directly. Um, so we have to make sure people don't get... But the idea of how... The answer is economy. It's an economic answer. The economic answer is what happens on the cross. It's a whole lot harder to give up the son, which is also part of him, than it is to just give up your own life. So that, I think, is the best argument when people start... Yeah. Yeah, the father The father did suffer in a very different way. He didn't suffer the nails, but I can tell you, like I think of Jesus' mother and things. I can't imagine... Have you ever been around... I've been around people suffering. I was with my mother when she died in bad way of cancer and things. It is really hard to see someone you love suffering and they can't do anything. It's excruciating. I've been on both sides, you know (laughs) you know, I've had some serious stuff. And you know, I've got to tell you it's a whole lot easier to be the person suffering than the than the person who loves them. I've been on both sides, I gotta tell you. That's the go for suffering yourself. You know, seeing the one you love unable to help is just wrenches your guts. It's just horrible you say, why can't this be me? Uh, you just don't want that. Okay. To answer your question? Don't hesitate to tell me no if it doesn't. That's nice with a group like this, a nice, size group. Although we chased away a lot of our people, haven't we? Yeah? Can I one question?
1: Yeah. So I guess, the, and it's the interesting thing with that, too, is even when we say that the father suffered, although he didn't suffer the nails, or mm-hmm. loves us, although, um, you know, he he doesn't have love in a human, effective way. Are we about
0: impassivity? Is that what we're going to?
1: Yeah, it's like emotion, beyond emotions, because God's not a psychological being. Or well,
0: let anything. me, well, God clearly does, um, we use human terms to describe it, but let me explain impassivity in, in philosophy very briefly, and what it is and what it's not. Okay, excellent question. Is... One of the things in Greek philosophy is the thing is God is unchanging. And emotions, the look is that changes us. Emotions change us. Therefore, God cannot, God is sort of cold in the sense that he's not, he's unchanged, he's unchanging, he's impassive. Uh, but actually, but the word impassive comes from, impassibility. A Latin word, patior, from which it comes, the past participle is, uh, is, is possum, is we get passion. Okay. Where that comes from is the it means to undergo to be basically the passive agent in something to undergo something instead of being active you're passive. That's where your passive comes from. Patior is to suffer so to to undergo to be you know to be acted upon is patior and that's where it gets from suffering. Okay, I think the way to look at it to me theologically that really makes sense is here's what happened. Have you ever had something like this with emotions where you say where did that come from? Have you ever had that where you look at it, you got angry or something, where did that come from? And you're shocked. And you're basically saying, I don't know who that was, you know, like that was somebody else. Is one of the things in philosophy they would emphasize is that our passions, that's why they're called passions, could make us do things that would stop us from, from free agency. They actually made us into something else. One of the signs, I hate to tell you this, is with Socrates, for example, sometimes you'll see a funny thing if you look in, in ancient manuscripts. You'll see a, a guy, uh, riding uh, a guy being uh, big, uh, big old guy uh, with a harlot put it nicely on his back, being ridden around like on a horsey, you know thing, and that's supposed to be Socrates. And the idea is, what's the what's the point? Socrates being ridden around by a prostitute, and the idea is, sex makes people do really stupid things. I mean, if they're not even themselves. Here's this great philosopher supposedly, and look, you know things, you know passions can make us do stupid things. Okay, they can make us not be us. I think the way we look at impassivity as a doctrine is that we're saying God is never overcome, doesn't have passion, says nothing will ever change God who he is. God can't get so mad he doesn't act like God. You know, he's always God. He's always, in, you know, he never changes. We could change. That's what we even have in law. We have, for example, murders and things. We have different first-degree murders. We say it's different when somebody, second-degree murder could be in anger. If I murder you in anger, it's less than having planned it. Right, because we understand it sort of gets overhauled. That never happens to God. God is never carried away. God never is anything other than what He is. I think that's a better way to look at impassivity. So it's not like God couldn't care less. Sometimes we act like you know God is just there, like He's stone cold, like a surgeon. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean it in a bad way, but I've had, had a lot of surgeries and things. I've got to tell you, my, my son is a doctor, and I have a brother who are. But they both told me I did some, some brain surgery or something. They said, "Look, I got to tell you." They say they're cold fish, you know, you know that's just, that makes them good surgeons. He said, but, you know, they're just cold fish. That's what they, makes them very good surgeons. So don't, don't look, you know, go, uh, go to somebody else for, for, for emotional support and things. The surgeon doesn't do that. Actually, they're wrong. I had a really great, uh, my surgeon, we actually bonded because we were went through two tumors together. Okay, <laughs> but uh, that's normally. I, I'm getting lost. Okay. So, uh, that's what, so I think maybe if we look at antipsivity that way. But the important thing is, the real thing in philosophy was that God does not change. But the fact that he cares for us is a fact taught of Scripture. God is love. He cares for us. And I think to deny that, like he's just this cold surgeon or something, is, is missing the point. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. You know, wood that they have, you know, this thing. Uh, we talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. So I, those are human comparisons, but I think to argue that God is indifferent. That God, that's what we, they, they, so I think impassivity, I think a good theological way to look at it, which is very sound, is that unlike us, when we have emotions, it can make us do things that aren't really us. You know, they get, they get, they're bigger than us, they take over. God has never taken over. Even, you know, he's always God, which is perfect love, always. That never changes. Nothing you do will change God being perfect love. Does that make sense? Now let's talk. Oh, so that's so we say with the common operation that is the God. We can say that anything a person of the Trinity does, God does. But it's not true that 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 anything a person does is true to the other persons, because the persons are deci- are defined by their not being the same. They're they're, they're defined by their distinctions. This is a really big deal with Gregory Nazianzus, for example, is they're defined by their distinctions. Because you can't be father and a son at the same time, to the same person. You know, my relationship to you, has. I'm either a father or a son, but I can't be both simultaneously. So that's the essence of we choose those things, is you can't be both. It's it's, it's a contradistinction. Okay. Now let's talk about mutual indwelling. This is a beautiful image that's typically lost. What we mean by this is Jesus says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? In that day you will know that I am in my Father. You get the, per- the thing, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. So what does it mean, mutual indwelling? The Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit. What does that mutual indwelling mean? And the word we use for this is a Greek word, Called perichoresis. Now, you know, if you don't know any Greek, let me help you remind you of your Greek. Peri means to go in a circle, go around. Like a periscope in a submarine, you can go any direction, you can look up above that's a periscope going around. And scope is look, periscope. Now, choresis might remind you of choreograph. You know, when you dance steps and things? Okay. So, perichoresis, the image is, is dancing around in a circle. It's a beautiful image. Now, we used to use the Latin word, but in recent last... I'm an old guy. In the last 20 years or so, actually the last 30 years, we've had to go to Greek terms. But in the West, we used to use the Latin term as curcum in session, which is exactly the same. Curcum, around, in session, you know, means the same thing in Latin. So yeah, that's just so you know, if you see it somewhere, it means going around in a circle. Here's the idea. if people Think of as like on, on Easter morning, when kids are dancing around. If you say who's in which space, you say everybody's in every space. Right, because they're all individual, but they're, they're sharing the same space. Because as they're going around, everyone's in every space. You see, that that's the image. They're saying that's how what God, what perichoresis means, is that even as the, you know, even though they're separate, you know, they're such, they all share the same space. Not space, literally, but you know, that's the idea. That's the image we have of perichoresis. Okay, and this is a beautiful thing, because this is part of the image of salvation when we talk about theosis in the East you know, deification is a Latin term for theosis, becoming God, you know, deification, is what happens here is like in Rez. Think again on an Easter morning when you're dancing around in a circle. What happens when a little kid wants to join in? Somebody reaches out their hand and brings them into the circle. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does, is, you know, remember Jesus says, if you're in me, then you'll be in the Father, I'm in the Father, and if you're in me, you'll be in the Father. That's what happens. He basically, through the Holy Spirit, you know, we are now in Jesus, who's the testament, and we're now in that circle. We're still not God. He's God. We're, we're separate. You know, we're, I'm not you, but we're in the same circle. We're sharing the same space. And that's a beautiful way of looking sort of the idea of the deification. We're participating in the very life. We're in the very heart of. We're not God. We're creatures, but yet we're participating in the very life of God as an image of that. Perichoresis. We, we join in the circle dance. Okay. That's mutual indwelling, quote, perichoresis. And here's a very, very famous diagram of the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all each God, but the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit. So we're saying they all share one being, they're all God, but by that definition, the very terms mean what they do not share. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about where people get problems, and we're going to make it, I hope, so clear that you won't have to worry about this. Uh, because people always worry, I know if I say something about the Trinity, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to be a heretic and they'll start bringing out, they'll start bringing, cutting this up for, for you know, for fire. No, we're just, you're going to be fine, we're not going to. Here are several false analogies. The first analogy that people try to talk about the Trinity, which is a mystery of God, is they try to use human analogies. I'm all for analogies, you've probably guessed. But here's one they'll do. They'll say it's like, oh, uh, you know, you can cut up a pie into three pieces, right? You can cut it up, or you can have, an egg shell, an egg yolk, an egg white. They're all part of the egg. Okay? Or this is St. Patrick, you know, saying, like a th- the, sh- the shamrock, right? With three leaves of a shamrock. Okay? These, this is a very bad example. Why? Because God is, is indivisible. There can't be a father without a son, without a Holy Spirit. There ab- they, they're, they're aren't parts, they're, not, they're inseparable. The one cannot exist without the other. You pull off a, cl- a leaf from a clover. And it's still very much a clover, just one with two leaves. God can't exist except in that dynamic state, a father loving the son. That's God's, it's all or nothing. And so, uh, you know, the fullness of God is present in each person of the Trinity. There's no, you can never divide God into parts. If you talk to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're talking to the Father and the Holy Spirit. You know, Christ is God, the Father is God. You know, to address any person of the Trinity is to address God. Because all of them are fully, completely, not a part of God. They're all of God. Jesus doesn't have to give messages to the Father. Okay. Now, the next one is modalism, uh, sometimes called Sabellianism, because Sabellius was a heretic in Rome who came up with this idea. It's very common in certain charismatic movements, anti Trinitarian charismatic movements, who baptize in the name of Jesus instead of the name of the Trinity. And here's the idea. Is I, I totally like have kids, right? I'm a father. I'm also a son. I, ha- I had parents long ago, sadly, I lost them long ago. But, you know, I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a brother. You know, I have siblings. I'm a citizen. You know, I'm a priest. You know, I'm a CPA. I'm a lot of different things. And their argument is that the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit describe what I happen to be doing. It's like Stephen the accountant doing something versus Stephen the priest doing something. They're just me describing it. it's just me doing things in different capacities. You know, like a mother, you know, you know, a mother versus a wife, you know, versus, you know, you're a lawyer. You know, you're doing all these things. You have a full life, but what are you doing? And why this is wrong is, remember, that we say that the, the persons are based on contract. You can't be father and son at the same time. I assure you, I'm all, I'm all of those things. They're not pieces of me. I am all, all of those things I describe simultaneously. You can't be a father and a son simultaneously, the same person. So you can be you know, a CPA and a priest at the same time. That's, one, doesn't, there's no, one doesn't stop you from being the other. So the trouble here is they're not oppositional. And remember, the terms of the Trinity are mutually exclusive. They're contradistinctions. So that's why modalism isn't true. And notice, that's why modalism becomes silly, because the, Jesus said, look, I have to go to the Father so he can send you the Holy Spirit. Well, if it's just me, can, I'm saying, look, you're talking to me and saying, can you help me out with my taxes? And I say, well, dude, you're talking to the priest now. I have to go home and talk to the accountant, and I'll check, you know, and I will send uh, you know the fellow member of Res here to come talk. You say, All right, you need medicine. You know, it's, I'm the guy that's not true, you know, you're not the same uh, same. That's called modalism or Sabellianism. The third is different forms. This is like water, ice, steam is the idea if we have the molecule of H2O, is that can take different forms, you know, different states. It could be the state of water, it could be the state of vapor if it's a gas, it could be, if it's a liquid, it's water, and if it's a solid, it's ice. But they're all H2O. And so people saying these are things, but here's what's wrong with that, is God is all Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously. The same molecule cannot be in three different states. So, the trouble with these is it can't be, is, and God never changes. It's not like sometimes God's ice and now he turns to vapor. No, God is ab- absolutely unchanging. So, those are the false comparisons and analogies, which leads us, okay, I want a good analogy. Gee, I want a good analogy, and St. Augustine came to the rescue. And here's what Augustine talks about. He wrote a lot on the Trinity. But let me, here's a key part of it. Think of it this way. Why are those analogies don't work? He says, here's the trouble. I'll put it in modern terms, but this is his argument. In modern terms, we talk about the time-space continuum, right? There are limitations with human beings based on time and space. The time-space continuum doesn't exist for God. And all of our analogies go bad because we're talking about things that exist in a time-space continuum. He says, is there anything we know that's not like that for human beings? Something we know that isn't subject to that. And he said there's one thing that in ancient science appeared to be the case. Because ancient science didn't think, we think of brains, and believe me, if you've had brain stuff, is you know, your brain does stuff here. They didn't think of that. They thought the, the, the brain was largely a spiritual operation, independent of the body. Your, your mind was sort of independent of your body. Okay. Uh, like the soul, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it was immaterial. Okay. So he was saying it's like that. If you look at it that way, memory, intellect, and will. Traditionally, in Greek philosophy he said there are three parts of how the mind works. Sort of like a computer. If we talk about intellect, is basically like your body is sort of like the, um, your hardware, you know, your actual computer, okay? And what the intellect is, is your operating system. You know, a computer can't work without an operating system, right? Just the, you have to load an operating system sometime on the computer. Okay. You have your intellect. You know, the, the, I can process information things, all the things in the applications. Basically that you have to, okay. But you know, if you have to process data. You can't do something without actually having data. Data is memory. Right? We have to have actually things loaded here to do anything. We have to have, that would be a better example, applications, but also data. If we don't have data and applications loaded onto the, the, operating, uh, the operating system, we can't do anything. Okay, but then again, if I could have a computer perfectly loaded, has plenty of data, et cetera, what's, what are we missing? An operator, somebody has to actually decide to do something with it and say, Well, do this, do that. That's will. Where I decide to take this and focus it. Okay. And so he's saying God is sort of like this, that the mind works, you have to have all three things. You know, if you don't have an operating system, your mind is damaged or something, if you don't have an operating system, you can't do anything. But if you had an operating system with no information, you know, if you had intellect but you'd have no memory, you have no data, you don't know uh, any of the things, you know, you couldn't really do anything. You need to have basic. All these things you need to know to think. But then again, you have to decide to think. You have to apply and say, what am I going to think? Oh, I'm th- I, you know, I, I actually focus on something. Our whole story is about, what do I focus on? And that was the, the ancient version of how the mind worked. And he's saying that's sort of what God is like. You, to have a thought requires all three. You know, all three, every thought involves all three. An operating system, you know, make the communal analogy. And it involves data and, and applications, software. And it involves my, somebody operating this. It has to op, somebody has to decide what to do with this. When I have all three, I have a thought. That's how I think. If I'm missing any one of these, if I list will or something, like if you have a coma or something where you, your thing is here but you no longer have will, you know, you're not, you know, if you've been unconscious and stuff, you, know, you, can't, you can't do that, unless you, you can't think unless you have all three going. So he says, that's what God is like. He said, we might say, because you know, it's all three are, are part. There's only one mind. You can't have, you need, our uh, mind has all three things, and all thing, things need to work together, you know, but together they act as one, you know, one common operation. They act together, we have a thought. You know, everything God does, He does it by a common operation. Now, what's the importance of, of, of this, of the Trinity? The first thing is this God is love. Now, I'm here to tell you, you can't love alone. How would you do that? So basically, we all see there's a community in the very personhood of God, in the very being of God. God is in community. The Father giving life to the Son, the receiving life, and the mutual giving and receiving the Holy Spirit. So it shows we have community within unity. The second point is how does God interact with us? Now, I want you to look at this very, this is very important for how we do, how we do mission. I'm going to really emphasize how, the, how we do mission. It says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, ex- comes to the Father except through me. We all know that. But we often miss the second part. No one, for it's early on, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So he says, you can't come except me, but you can't just come to Jesus. The Father draws you, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So basically, the Father sends the Son, but it's the Holy Spirit who brings us to Jesus. And this is a very important theological point that has practical implications in ministry. Every conversion is a miracle. No one can be talked into belief, into saving faith. You can make good... I'm all for arguments. I'm a theologian. I mean, I'm all for... I'm not, I, I'm not an obscurantist. But I've got to tell you, this really helps to understand. Saving faith is always the work of God himself. We only can come to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now, we can help pave the way for the Holy Spirit's work, you know, to move some of the barriers. But at the end, do not think, what am I doing wrong? No, your work is always, from first to last, is to work is going to be the Holy Spirit. That's really important. Another thing, this is one of the things we... um, that can help us in ministry to get, get things right. Often, for example... We have this idea that, gee, if I talk to someone and they don't come to the Lord, don't come to faith, that somehow I wasted my time. It's just a, excuse me, no. Often this is how the Holy Spirit plants the seeds. You know, often the seed we plant, Jesus has a wonderful parable in only one gospel. It's in Mark. I love this. i am got to paraphrase our Lord. He says, you know, it's like this. He says, you plant a seed and it looks like nothing's happening. But underground, all the stuff is happening and suddenly it pops up You know, later on out of nowhere. But look, where did this come? You know, a little seed, whoa, look at that, it just pops out of nowhere. That's how the Spirit often works. So we understand that very often, just because you don't have immediate result, well, gee, when you plant a seed you don't expect it to come up tomorrow morning, is sometimes, it's always God's work, but very often, not to be discouraged, very often we're planting seeds that come up much later. God often has time bombs that He uses in conversion. That can be very encouraging us to know that. Also, Jesus says something I loved. is He says to the disciples when he sends them out, he says, look, look at that. He says, the harvest is ripe. The harvest is plentiful. We have the idea that somehow we're going out to convert the world to plant, plant churches and things. Jesus says, well, plant churches is true, but not, to, not plant the gospel. The Holy Spirit's been doing that. He's been paving the way. We're coming to, 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 uh, to harvest the work the Holy Spirit has done. That gives us real understanding this is not our work. Paul likes to talk about that. You know, I'm going to conflate a few of Paul's things. He said, look, it's like this. I came to you guys, and I didn't come with some philosophical arguments like the Greeks, some really incredible arguments. I didn't come with any. Actually, I came with sort of a dumb story that there's this dead guy who walked out of a tomb. You've got to believe me on this. That's not a very believable story. And he said, I didn't come with any great signs. And he said, you know, I'm not a very imposing person. Some people have this tremendous charisma. He said, I'm not, and he, we know it's true. He's not a good speaker. We know that's literally true because people wanted to get other people to preach in his own churches. So he said, but how did you know that? Because it was the Spirit. The Spirit was telling you, I know this is true. So remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. Think about Nineveh. What happened in Nineveh? Why in the world would anyone... This is actually the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is that, you say, well, isn't isn't it in the fish? No, Jesus goes on. Actually, uh, Luke doesn't mention that, per se. Is, did the Ninevites see Jonah in the whale, the great fish? No. All they knew is this Jewish guy came to to preach that they are going to be destroyed. They need to repent. Why in the world would they believe him? They didn't have the prophets, and they had winter gods. You know, in the ancient world, you thought of the multiple gods, you had winner gods and loser gods. Somewhere, more, they had a winner god. Uh, you know, I mean, they were, you know, the Jews were just a little people over here. Why would they pay any attention to a god like that? But, do you want to open for him? Okay. So, uh, but the, uh, sorry, we didn't mean to lock you out. I told you not to go try to buy oil at this time of night. <laughs> you should have brought your own. Okay, but <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not like the others I brought. <laughs> okay, welcome back. So, But, the, but the, the point is that we have to understand it's the Spirit. This will help our ministry differently. We keep popping over. We have to understand. Also, this is a beautiful thing is to understand, like people often think in, in, uh, from a purely evangelical uh, background sometimes, and I'm probably evangelical, is they act like, you know, God sort of hated my guts until I came to Jesus and somehow I had this faith and now God loves me. Excuse me, the Scripture says God saw you before there was a world, and everything he's been doing in your life, has been, he's been doing all the work leading up to this. How do you think we got to this point? So don't think you did something. This has all been God's work. So understanding the Holy Spirit is the one who's leading us here. That helps us really love God even more, because sometimes people feel then they'll say, "Well, I have to be saved again because I don't, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't sincere enough." But we say, "Wait a second. Look at what God's work in your life. He's brought through all this stuff, and here He is bringing you to faith. God's always been after you. That that's the truth." So again, the idea is that that it understands God reaches out to us through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what draws us to the Son. It's His divine work that draws... Only the Holy Spirit can give us saving faith. You know, and then through the Son to the Father. So here, the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit, God reaching out. The Father's Spirit draws us to the Son, the Son leads us to the Father. So this is the basic pattern of prayer we have in the Western Church. We pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you look at our, in our prayers that we have, well, the colics and things, that's the traditional formula for prayer. You know, we pray to the Father, Jesus, prayed pray to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing that can really help if you're saying, gee, I want to bone up on this or something, is one of the three Catholic creeds we'll talk about is the Athanasian Creed. Despite its name, it has nothing to do with St. Athanasius. Okay, but, uh, but what happens here is it really spells out things so you cannot miss them. So let's walk through some of the things it says about the Trinity. It says the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So three in one and one in three. You can't choose one. They're not three gods. But it's not just one God, but there's three Persons. We have to have the unity and one God, three, three Persons. Neither confounding the Persons, you know, can't mix up the Persons, nor dividing the Essence. So, we're not, God doesn't have three parts. There's only one God. Okay, we, we don't divide it up, but we don't confound them either. We don't batch them all together. But within that one, piece, there are three distinct Persons. Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit. Okay. The next. Okay, such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. So they're all equally God. Okay, the Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. Okay, we have this. the, um, okay, the Father is unlimited, the Son is unlimited, the Holy Spirit is unlimited. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Holy Ghost is eternal. Okay, he loves repeating this. Is there any doubts about this? Each one has exactly the same qualities. And he says, okay. But there are differences, Yet there are, and there are not three Eternals. They're not separate. There's only one God. Only God is eternal. Okay. Also, there are not three uncreated or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. Okay. There are not three almighties, but one almighty. Not three gods, but one God. Not three lords, but one Lord. Did I mention that he tends to beat this down? Okay. Now, this is actually a quote here. Now what is difference of the persons? We say the Father is made of none. The Father has no origin. He is the origin. He is the principium. He is the source. Okay, he's neither created nor begotten. He simply is. I am. The Son is of the Father alone, uh, not made, not created, not begotten. So he, you know, he is begotten of the Father. He comes from the Father. He's not made. He's not created. He's begotten, which is you know sharing in the very essence of it. the Father. Gives uh, gives gives himself, and that is received, and you know, and the mutual love is returned. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. That's why he's not a brother of Jesus, because Jesus comes from the Father. Whereas the Holy Spirit comes, one way or another, involves both the Father and the Son. That's the difference, we call that proceeding. You're saying there's a difference. He's not uniquely from, you know, there's Jesus is involved. Or I should say Christ is involved. Okay, so there is one Father, we say. Not three fathers, one Son, not three Sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. I mean, they, they each have, none is greater and none is less than the other. But all three persons are co eternal and co equal. So it's not a ranking system. The Father doesn't outrank the Son, does not rank. Now, sometimes what we get the idea is because of the hypostatic union, I mean, hypostasis means one of the persons of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity has actually taken on humanity, has added that, like an extra room, we said, has taken on humanity. So the human portion of that, you know, of that person is, is below the Father. So whenever we talk in the scriptures, the Father is greater than I, referring to the humanity of Christ. In his humanity, he's inferior to the Father. But in his divinity, said the Father and I are one. In his divinity, he's equal. So since he's truly God and truly man, when we talk about him less than the Father, it's his humanity. His human nature is less, but his divine nature is absolutely equal. We talked about that uh, a few weeks ago in Christology. Let's do some questions here. See, we get these, and I encourage cheating. Okay, if you're not cheating, you're just not trying hard enough. Okay, so when was the second person of the Trinity begotten? At creation or before all ages? Pardon? Okay, the reason people might think at At creation is is because the beginning of John's gospel you know might lead someone to think you know in the, in the beginning in the beginning was the word like that was first happened but we're saying here it's of course before all ages there's never a time where there is not a uh, a son the logos is eternal so we have to talk about him what we really mean before all ages means outside of time because again in a lot of ways it's really an ongoing eternal process okay that was easy okay how about this what position best describes the understanding of the western church concerning the holy spirit the holy spirit proceeds from the father the holy spirit proceeds from the father through the son or the holy spirit proceeds from the father and the son see right because we're saying The technical term in in, uh, theology is we talk about a a single principle, a common principle. The two together form the common principle. The Eastern Church would say number two, from the Father through the Son. And they do that to try to preserve the Father as being the unique principle of anything. Yes?
1: Yeah, so is that difference between the East and the West in this way? It's not really something that's like... So obviously they
0: Well, the East really has made this... Very often, sadly, we major in minors. And so what happened, the East has really made this a, um, a point of contention, about typical people on the ground. They're arguing this is the thing that really... Um, so they often make a big deal about it. We've had two different councils, one at uh, Florence and one at Lyon, where they, they tried to reunite the church and actually agreed on a formula of faith. would use words that would, were good for everybody. But um, that, they, it just broke down, you know, their resistance. There's just a lot of bad blood between the East and the, um, and, and the West. If you're not aware, of some of the part, part of the bad blood was that in the East what happens is uh, for, they were trying to get help against the, great, the Muslim invasions and things which eventually take them out and the like. Uh, they had two things against the West big time. One was they—they they had this vision that they were—they were—they were the actual descendants of the Roman Empire, the continuing Roman Empire. With the barbarian invasions in the West, the Roman Empire really ends. And when we actually set up a separate Western Emperor, Charlemagne becomes the Emperor of the West. You know, this they see as a revolt, like a like a like our civil war. You know, like a revolt—you're you're breaking away, you're breaking up the Roman Empire. So they really resented that. Uh, and the second thing they resented was they felt abandoned. They were taking all the brunt of the Muslim attacks and things, and they felt we were, we, we were uh, leaving them bleeding. Other things didn't help. On the Fourth Crusade, we didn't make it to the Holy Land, but we did make it to Constantinople. We managed to loot the city and you know, set up a Latin bishop. So there's a lot of bad blood uh, there that often led people not to want to solve the problem. I don't think it's an insoluble problem. But a lot of orthodox, in the West, we don't look at that way. We say we could certainly accept the Eastern terminology understood properly, but they are the ones who have made this defining often because we often define ourselves based on differences. We want to make that the key thing. Why aren't we? So you're going to find a lot of negativity in the East that you won't find in the West. Question three. Which of the following, okay... Which of the following is the best analogy for the Trinity? One clover, three leaves, one man, student, worker, and citizen, one person, baby, child, and adult, all of the above or none of the above? Well, let's think of the first one. What's wrong with one clover, three leaves? Parts of a whole. Right, and we say that the Trinity when it, when it, God can't exist without all three. God is that—that's the life within the Trinity. You can't ever have one without the other. So it's not parts. Parts mean you can take them apart. Okay, uh, one man, student, worker, and citizen—they're just, just different roles. And you can—I I, can—I can have a job and be a student. I did when I was in school. You can do both simultaneously. And we're simply—you can The Father can't be the Son simultaneously, right? You can't do that. So that's called modalism. It's simply saying at a given moment what I'm doing. and No, it's the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit. How about baby, child, and adult? That's the same person in different forms, like water, uh, vapor, and uh, ice. So God doesn't change. And again, you can't be all three at the same time. You're one or the other. Okay, so the answer is none of the above. And what's the Augustinian analogy that uh, traditionally has been used in the church? Intellect, memory, and will, the three functions of the mind. You know, that, hey, you, you, a mind if I can all three, and it's one mind, perfectly functioning. Every th- thought it has, all three are involved in. <laughs> all three are involved in, yeah. Question four. Which of the following statements best describes the common operation of the Persons of the Trinity? That they do all things together in the same way, or that they do all things together, but each in their individual way? Well, did the Father die on the cross? No. So it can't be they all do the same thing in the same way. They're all involved, right? So they all, do, they all do things together, like the Father gives the Son, who gives the life on the cross, who gives the Spirit, okay, but each in their own individual way. The Father's giving the Son, the Son's giving his life, the, son, the Holy Spirit is, it comes from the, the, the Son's gift. Okay, so that would be the second one. We call that common operation. Whenever they do, they do together. But that doesn't mean, you know, again, that they are doing exactly the same thing. Question 5. What is the appropriate term to describe the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity? Economy, spiration, procession, and perichoresis. Yeah, perichoresis. Remember the circle dance? How do we indwell? How can we all... And that's a beautiful example, because if you're dancing in a circle, you're occupying the whole... You don't have the space. You have all the spaces are yours. You're all sharing the same space, and yet you're separate. So that's why they, that's a beautiful way to describe it. Economy has to do with what God does rather than who He is. Spiration talks about how the Holy Spirit proceeds; is you know He's breathed out, as opposed to being begotten. And procession uh, uh, is, a, is another word for that. You know pro- He proceeds from the Father through the Son, or from the Father and the Son. I want to show you some pictures here. This is the famous. Uh, Rublev Trinity. and let's tell something of why they love the, why this picture is really very good uh, for Trinitarian theology. What's one of the things you first know? look at their faces. Who's the father? by looking at their faces? can you tell? Who's the old one? They're all equal same age. That's the point. The reason they like this Trinity is that, that it, we often have the father is an old man and the son is you know young etc. and say, wait a second. God, you know, there is no age. All the members of the Trinity are equal, so they love this because they're all the same age. Isn't that beautiful? They're all the same age. Okay. By the way, the uh, Son is, is uh, the middle. How do you know that? Because he has blue over red. Blue is divinity, red is humanity. You know, his divinity covers our humanity. So that's Jesus in the middle. We have the Father there on the left. The Holy Spirit, green is the Holy Spirit's color. You might think, I thought that was red. No, red is the the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Green, the Holy Spirit is described as the Lord, the giver of life. And green is the color of life. So, and look what they're doing. They're sort of looking around in a circle, but the Holy Spirit is also sort of looking out. And that's telling us we come into the circle by through the Holy Spirit, and next in the circle is Jesus, then the Father. And now we're entered into the circle. So that's the theology. Each one of them has a staff. The staff is a traditional symbol of authority. They each have an equal staff. They share equal authority, equal honor and authority. So it's a beautiful. Eastern icons are all about theology. They'll change anything to get you the right theology. So that's a beautiful. Yes, sir. What was it about the? Uh, what did you say about the color of the father's outer garment again? Have- I was talking about Jesus' garment. No, the father is. Um, I, I don't know how you describe that here. Um, the, it typically tends to be a sort of gold type of thing, um, but I don't know what how you describe that color there because it's not red. Uh, but he doesn't. The father doesn't have a standard color because the only time we ever see him is in this is in the uh, the we only see him in at in, in the Mamre, because in, in pure Orthodoxy, I mean people are really strict about this when they are. Is we only can have icons of of things we have seen. No one's seen the Father. The only time, but we say at Mamre, it was all three persons of the Trinity. Therefore, that was an authentic represent. We can make a picture of it because it really happened. So therefore, what would you have seen? You would have seen the three people. So um, yeah, it's not clear to me what that color is, but the Holy Spirit's color is meaningful. The, the green is the standard color of the Holy Spirit, and the, the only color in the Eastern Church of the Holy Spirit. this Oh, uh, this, I think about the 14th century, I, I think, yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, what do they... I
0: mean, obviously, there could be theological truth. Yeah, the, well, that's why they have the, they're have looking around, because they are separate, yet they are together in here and looking out into the world. That's right, that's always going to be the problem of... We can look at one as opposed to the other. If we focus on the That's what we have in the Athanasian Creed, because if we focus on the unity, we might forget the differences. And that's the whole plan of salvation. The Father sends the Son, you know, the Holy Spirit. That's important, you know, they act you know, differently. Otherwise, why do we need a New Testament? It was just the same Father. You don't think we need that because the Father's the same plan. The Father now sends the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. But you're right. When we focus on those, it's easy to treat them as though they were different gods. So we focus, but we also could treat them like they're just molds or something. But they're not. I mean, uh, that's why it's so much more that the Father would give His Son. You know, is is a really powerful image. Uh, He's pointing to, um, uh, I think actually you have a lamb in there, but I think it's pointing to his incarnation. Yeah. And the tree back there is Mamre. Remember the oaks at Mamre? That's the oak at Mamre, yeah. But again, the important thing was, again, they're in the circle. They're the same age. They have the same authority. They're looking at each other, going around in a circle, and the Holy Spirit is sort of looking out because it's through him. That's how we enter into the circle. It's the Holy. And in the Eastern Church, pneumatology, which means pneuma is Greek, is the, is the word for spirit. So it means the, you know, the, the, the study of the Holy Spirit is really big in Eastern theology. You know, they really have emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why in the Eastern Church, it's so big on the epiclesis. Send your spirit on these gifts to make them for us. It's the work of the Spirit is how we connect with God. You know The direct connection, the, the, the Spirit of Jesus working with us is the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Jesus working now. This so is the real emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. Whereas in the West, sometimes he's just been lost uh, in popular. You know, we have the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is sort of, uh, you know, a third child. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's try another one. Here's another example of a Trinity um, where we see each of the, a Western thing. We have the Father is an old man, but we have, you know, Ancient of Days, okay, but we have. Uh, Christ, he's offering his son. The father's love, he would give his son. The son coming from his death gives us the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the spirit coming from the father through the son, the Holy Spirit, that image. It's a nice image of the, of the uh, trinity. Another one, similar one, of the father with his son, the Holy Spirit. Yet another, you see. The <laughs> you get the idea. Okay. And with that, I have 20 after 10, so why don't we take our break here? And I would suggest, given that we're done 10 minutes early we have a lot to do, why don't we uh, go for the half an hour and I'll come back at 10 of. Okay, fair enough.